uh, from Matthew chapter uh, 6, beginning at verse 5. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray, standing in the synagogues and on the street corners, to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. And when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father, who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Thanks, Steve. We are starting a new season in terms of the church life. Always September is a time when things are starting afresh. And um, if somebody was to ask me, what's, what's on your heart as the lead pastor here at CFM? What is God saying to us as a church? I would uh, humbly and uh, carefully say, I think God is calling us into a season of prayer as a church. And therefore, we're starting, as we wish to continue, we're starting this month, as uh, Ian has already mentioned. On uh, Sunday mornings, we're going to look at prayer, and then on Sunday nights, we're going to... So we usually used to have a, uh, a week of prayer at the beginning of September or at the beginning of January. Well, this year, we're going to have like a month of prayer, in, in that sense, on Sunday nights, taking time out to pray together for, for different things. And I believe this is uh, part of God's heart for us. I remember reading, I, I don't know how many of you, we can do a bit of a show of hand and a little bit of an amateur sort of uh, poll this morning. Uh, how many of you are enamored with technology and think that the whole AI thing is a good thing? All right, okay. <laughs> how, how many of you think it's a bad thing? How many of you are not sure? Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a really mixed bag, and it's really challenging. And uh, while I, I, I think there are some amazing things that technology can bring to us, also there are things that are not so great. I was reading a report not long ago about, about airplane pilots. And uh, obviously, uh, airplanes used to have had automatic pilots or autopilots for a really long time. It's not something that's new in terms of the technology. But what I've realized recently is that actually it's detrimental to the skills of the pilots that very often the planes are fly, flying on autopilot. And uh, basically the people in the industry doing research on this and seeing the impact that it has in terms of their ability are, uh, are sensing that what's happening is what they call skill fade or skills decay. And actually... To some extent, some of the specialists that analyzed some of the severe recent air disasters have kind of uh, made the supposition that maybe some of the reasons why some of those tragic accidents have happened, it is because automation-related piloting of the plane actually created problems. In other words, they are encouraging all the pilots probably to 
use more of their skills, human skills that they had been taught and enabled and trained instead of relying on automation. Why am I saying all this? I think spiritually there is a parallel, and, and, and you would sense it within yourself as well, that very often it's really easy to coast, spiritually speaking. Uh, we're a relatively uh, medium towards a large church, and sadly things can function pretty well just on automation. And by automation I mean human effort. To some degree we don't need God. There's a lot of things that can carry on every single week without God's activity. And that's a very, very, very dangerous place to be. R.A. Torrey wrote these words, and they're pretty haunting, and they're strong. I remember reading them as a teenager, and they struck me. And here is what he wrote. We are too busy to pray, and so we are too busy to have power. We have a great deal of activity but we accomplish little. Many services, but few conversions. Much machinery, but few results. And that's why I think for us as a church, at the stage that we're at, it is a little bit of a crossroads. The, the, the larger and the stronger you become, the less you need to depend on God. Because human activity can mask a lack of relationship and a lack of input from God. And unfortunately, it takes a little bit of time before that gets exposed. Almost behind every spiritual wreckage, whether we're talking about individual, individual believers, individual Christians, or leaders, or churches, when you peel back the layers and begin to ask the question, why did such a mighty ministry fall? Why did such a mighty leader fall? What you would realize is that in their own life, there was a lack of the basics. And when you peel it back, it's a lack of prayer, a lack of dependency on God, a lack of humility, a lack of a sense of only God can do what God has to do in my life and in the life of the church. And this is why it's so important. I love the fact that Jesus, when he speaks in what is known as the Sermon on the Mount that Matthew recalls in in chapter 5, 6, 7, uh, of his gospel, Jesus addresses the issue of prayer. And in verse 9, I love the way he says this, this is then how you should pray. I'm grateful that I get help from Jesus in teaching us how we need to pray. And while very often we've used the Lord's Prayer as something that we have recited, learned by heart and recited, I think there's so much more. There are other layers to the Lord's Prayer. And I think what Jesus is doing when he's teaching the disciples, he's giving them a framework. He's giving them a pattern. He's giving them some sort of an idea of what a good prayer should be about. And there are hints and principles in there that are really helpful to us if we're asking the question, how should I pray? And that's why Jesus is really helpful to us when he is encouraging us to say these words. And he's saying, this is then how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we'll stop there for this morning. We have so many questions when it comes to prayer. 
And I think we want to ask, how should we pray? We want to ask, what shall we pray about? How should we pray? And Jesus in this passage is answering some of those questions, and we're going to look at them one by one over the next few Sundays. When it comes to prayer, I think there are at least two barriers, big barriers. At least they're in my life. And by the way, I please take it for granted that I am not an expert at praying. I am somebody who struggles with prayer, but has a deep desire to grow in my prayer life. Sometimes when we hear somebody speak or we read somebody who writes a book, we tend to think they've got it sussed. They've nailed it. It's not true. Most of the time, and this is what I find, some of the best speakers and the best writers are people who struggle because I can identify with that. Somebody who's got it all sorted, I can't identify. It's very difficult. So when we look at this, we've got to realize that I think there are at least a couple of barriers that are really challenging. And the two most significant barriers in my life to prayer, number one is this, and they're both lies from the enemy. One barrier is God doesn't care. So I won't pray because God doesn't care. There's no point. He's not interested. He's got bigger and better things to think about. He doesn't, he doesn't want to hear from me. And the second big lie is God can't do anything about that. Sometimes it can be a situation in our families, a situation at work, a situation with our bodies in terms of illness, and we tend to think God can't do anything about that. That's not what God does. And they're both lies. And this morning, as we look at that question, why should I pray? I want to give you a couple of things from the text that help us to actually have the confidence to say God cares and God can. And this is the first thing that we notice right here. God cares. When Jesus teaches the disciples how to pray, he says to them, this then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven. And I've underlined that word, Father, because this is crucial to our motivation of why we should pray. What Jesus is teaching to all those who were listening to him would have been jaw-dropping. If me and you would have been in that crowd, they were listening to Jesus' teaching at a time, and we would have heard Jesus say, when you pray, address God as a father, everybody would have gasped in the audience because that's not how you talked as a Jewish person about the almighty God, the maker of the universe, the Lord of hosts. This would have been inappropriate, over-intimate. It wouldn't have been something that we would have ever dreamt of saying when we address God. Yet that's the exact thing that Jesus does. He introduces this new concept in terms of man's relationship with God in which we can call God, that yes, that God, the creator of the world, the Lord of hosts, we can call him Father. Because when Jesus comes into the world, he comes to actually restore our broken relationship with God. So this is a little bit of an anticipation in what Jesus says when he teaches them to pray our Father. Because of his work on the cross, because Jesus came into the world to save us from our sins. We were sinners, enemies of God, distant, 
Huge gap in between us. And yet when Jesus comes, he comes to bridge that gap through his sacrifice in order to reunite that broken relationship with God that was started in the Garden of Eden. And suddenly, we're in that position where if we have Christ as our Savior, if he has forgiven our sins, if he has given us his righteousness, our relationship with God that before was broken apart is mended, and we're okay again. But what we get in Christ is an upgrade. Because now, and this is the word that the Apostle Paul is using to describe what happens when we get reconciled with God. We are adopted in his family and we become God's heirs. So it isn't just like our relationship is sorted and God says, okay, I'll forgive your sins. Now God, sit in the corner and think about what you've done. Instead, he says, I'm welcoming you as my adopted children. And you've got the rights of an heir. So you can come in prayer and address God as father. It's uh, that passage in Galatians 4 where Paul is writing, because you are his sons, and Paul is not gender exclusive here, because sons in that culture were highly elevated. So actually what God is saying is, you know, when he's saying about sons, he's not excluding the daughters, but he's saying you've got the very best. So he says, because you are his sons, God sent his spirit, the spirit of his son into our hearts, and this spirit calls out, Abba, Father. You are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has also made you an heir. This is the amazing work that Jesus does when he comes into the world. He enables us to be reconciled with God, and suddenly now we can call him. And that word Abba is even more intimate. It's daddy. We can call him daddy, and we can come to him in prayer. Because he's a father who cares so deeply and he's so close that he invites us into a relationship with him. Jim Packer wrote about this. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much they make of the thought of being God's child and having God as their father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls the worship and the prayers and the whole outlook on life, it means they do not understand Christianity well at all. For everything that Jesus taught, everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that is distinctly Christian as opposed to simply Jewish, is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Father, this is an absolute mic drop, Father is the Christian name for God. This is a total game changer. This is a huge upgrade. This is an incredible password that we receive to come into the very holy of holies in the presence of God because of the work of Christ completed on the cross. So when Jesus teaches the disciples, he says to them, come and pray. Why why should we come and pray, they might say. Come and pray because now God the Almighty is your Father who cares for you so deeply. In another place, Jesus encourages the disciples not to worry in the Sermon on the Mount. And if 
they were to ask why. He says, look at the birds of the air and, and, and the flowers of the field. If God cares for them, how much more do you think he would care for you as his children? He knows even the amount of hairs that you've got in your head. He knows every thought that you had. Earlier on, as Steve read, even before we ask God when we pray, he already knows what we're going to ask because he is the Father. And that's the reason why Jesus would say, come and pray because God is ready to listen. One day a boy was standing waiting for the bus on the side of the road. And somebody was passing by, and they said to him, what are you doing? And he said, I'm, I'm waiting for the bus. And they said, well, you're in the wrong place. <laughs> There's no bus stop here. You know, the bus stop, you need to go a little bit further, uh, you know, maybe about 10 minutes to get there. And the boy said, no, 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 I'll, I'll wait here. The, the bus will stop. And they said, don't be stubborn. Why are you being stubborn? The bus can't stop here. You can wave. You can do all sorts of, they, they won't stop here. And the boy said, no, no, I'm confident it will stop. And then the person said, I'm giving up. Well, why on earth would you be so stubborn? He said, I'm not being stubborn. My dad's the bus driver. <laughs> it makes all the difference. It makes all the difference. That's why we pray. Because our Father in heaven invites us into a relationship with him. And he says, come and speak to me. Because I want to hear from you. Other people may look at you and think, why, why are you talking to God? But you and I, we know the Father cares so deeply about us. Now, I know we've got some work to be done when it comes to our concept of the Father. And it's one of the challenging things when I speak on the Sermon on the Mount with the students at Cape and realizing that the reality of our experience of even that word and the connotations it brings to our lives are so mixed. In a room, you would have people who have a great relationship with a father, and they can totally identify with this passage. And they go, yeah, that makes it really easy for me to come to God in prayer. Other people, probably the, the vast majority in the middle, have had a fairly okay father, but pretty absent. And they have a difficulty to connect. Because every time they hear the word father, they're thinking, doesn't care. And even worse... There's another group of people who've had a horrendous experience of a father. And the last thing they want to hear is that God is the father. But that's not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is talking the best version of a father you could ever dream of. The one where the father cares so deeply and holds the child's hand and has the child on his lap. And goes with the child as the child is growing through the different stages of life, supporting, encouraging, building them up. And the child trusts them like no one else. Because the father is worth trusting. That's who Jesus is talking about. And that's the image of a father that the Bible reveals. And I think when we say that God cares, I think it should have not just an intellectual impact upon us, but an emotional one. When it comes to prayer, it's not just about intellect, is it? I mean, how many, how many times we have this very difficult journey to make from here to here? We, we, we know things in our heads, but we don't feel them in our hearts. And I think what Jesus is doing when he's teaching us to pray to the Father, he's, he's appealing to our emotional side and he's saying, you know, just, just come with your heart. 
Even if you had this saying, oh, maybe he's not interested, just come because you get drawn by the love of the Father and that trust in him. Jesus himself tells a beautiful story, probably one of the most beautiful parable stories that Jesus tells in, in his teaching on earth. It's called the parable of the prodigal son. And it's uh, the story of a son, younger son. Who, there's two sons in the family. Younger son comes to the father before the father dies and says, can I have my share of the inheritance? And the father surprisingly gives it to him. And he goes and just squanders it stupidly, recklessly, like an idiot. But there comes a moment in his life when he, he has this wake-up call, when he suddenly realizes, I'm, the, I'm in this terrible place, and it's all of my own doing, and I've been stupid, and I made a huge mistake. But he has the humility, and there's this, that, 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 that something of the trust in the love of the Father that draws him back home. And he says, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to go back to the father. I can't go like a son because I've messed it all up. But I'll go and be a servant in my father's house because it's better than where I am now. And he goes. And as Jesus tells the story, the people are more amazed because this is so shocking. And the father doesn't welcome him chastising him. The father doesn't reject him. The father doesn't put any conditions to him coming home. And so the father goes and runs with his arms wide open, welcoming his son that was once lost. And now he's returning home. And he restores him to the honor of a son despite of what he's done. That's the picture I want you to have in your head when you're thinking of the father. This is a good, good, good father. Amazingly good. With a kindness that we've never, ever seen before anywhere else. And that should draw us to pray. Jesus says, when you pray, pray like this, our Father in heaven. But the second thing that I think is a, is a really good motivative prayer, God also can. So when Jesus is teaching the disciples, he says, this is then how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. The two things you need to hold together in, 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 in your motivation that should draw you to pray is God is my father and God is the king. Is that image, uh, it probably only applies to boys in, in the schoolyard. I, I, we, I grew up on a council estate with high-rise block of flats in a school of nearly 2,000 uh, pupils. And uh, invariably, there was a lot of uh, that kind of stuff going on. And it's usually the older boys that wanted money for cigarettes They'll be cornering you and, uh, you know, promising you some real treatment if you didn't cough up the dosh. And, uh, you know, you, you had a couple of strategies. And uh, sometimes it worked. If you had an older sibling who was a boy, you know, who was hard, you kind of got away with it. But if you didn't have any siblings like me, there was only one other option. Wait till you meet my dad. Wait till you meet my dad. And uh, I particularly remember one time when I was just like having such a hard time. I couldn't even go to the toilet. The moment you went to the boys' toilets, they'd be cornering you, beating you up, throwing you around, all that kind of stuff. And uh, we, we always had German shepherd dogs. And 
Uh, and they were guard dogs. Uh, our house got broken into, and, and we just, you, you know, started getting a dog, and, and usually a, a, a guard dog. And this particular one, it was, I think, our second German shepherd that we had was a retired border police dog. His name was Rocky. <laughs> and he was hard, I tell you. And I remember saying to Dad, Dad, I'm having such a hard time with these guys. And Dad's not a confrontational guy. He's super placid, really nice, really easygoing. So I don't think he would have cut, you know, the image to threaten the, the troublemakers. But I said to Dad, Dad, you just come and bring Rocky with you. And he did. And I tell you what, he just needed to give a few commands to Rocky on the leash. And I think the boys calmed down. You know, there is a sense in which it's not just good enough to know that God cares. You need to know that God can do something about it. And that's what Jesus is teaching. He's saying, the God that I invite you to pray, it's not just the Father who cares, but it's a king who can. It's the king of the universe. So when you pray, you say, your kingdom come. You remember that you come to somebody who has both authority and power. And you need both. You know, there's plenty of people in a uniform who've got authority, but very often they don't have the power to do anything about it. But this God is the king of the universe. He has both authority and power, and he can do something about anything that you bring to him with a confidence that the Father is interested. This is a God who's the creator of the world. Everything that you've, you've, you've seen, and we love the nature programs, and they are increasingly mind-blowing. You look at that, and you're thinking, oh, my word. Everything is just so intrinsically linked and so creatively made. And then you look at a human body. This is our God. This is the king that does this. If you want to convince yourself about how amazing and powerful God is, just read through the book of Job. Particularly when God begins to speak and challenges Job and his friends. He says, come on, boys, let me have it. Let me tell you a little bit about what I've done. In the probably most realistic and non-boastful way, this God, as a king, is absolutely amazing and powerful. Jesus, when he comes... He performs those miracles, and they're the signs of the kingdom. They are the autograph of the king. Everything that Jesus did supernaturally was meant to say to people, I have got power and authority. Him walking on water, him transforming a few loaves and some fish into food enough for 5,000 plus people, him calming a storm, him raising people from the dead, everything had a signature of the king. So that every single time me and you have a prayer request, think about something, and we get nervous thinking, can God do something about it? Jesus would say, remember what I've done. Remember my signature. Remember my miracles. That was just a glimpse of what I can do. And it's meant to say to you, this king is powerful. Come and pray. Everything that Jesus did, every healing, every provision, every resurrection from the dead, his own resurrection, forgiveness, everything is talking about his king. You know, when somebody's coming and doing work for you at your house, hopefully they will have, depending on what kind of work it is, 
you know, if it's major kind of architectural work, they will have a portfolio, right? Okay, they will, you know, or if you sign it kind of a little bit smaller, you know, they have some pictures of some previous work that they've done somewhere, right? Am I on the right track? Or are you just trusting them? Oh, yeah, just, you know, yeah, just whatever. I build the Eiffel Tower. Okay, you can do my roof. They usually have a portfolio. Do you usually see the work that they've done before? And it's almost as if everything on the pages of the Gospels are Jesus' portfolio as the king who has amazing power and authority. The more we look at that, the more confidence we have. The psalmist in Psalm 24 verse 1 declares, The earth is the Lord and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Football fans at the moment are aghast when they look at the riches of the countries in the Arabian Peninsula, where they come and buy your football players for gazillions of pounds. And they think, oh my word, these people have got so much wealth. Well, David the psalmist would probably say, that is nothing. Let me tell you about the king, the Lord. He has everything, everything is his. And that's why we should pray, Jesus is saying. Pray because God is your father. Pray because God is the king. Pray because he cares. Pray because he can. Everything that you bring to him, he will listen and he can do amazing things about it. So how do we practically go forward with this? to maybe restart, refresh, or even just start our own prayer life. This is an important reminder. Uh, Don Carson writing about this is really helpful to us. This is what he says. We don't drift into spiritual life. So if you think, okay, Christy, you've kind of convinced me this morning about you know, prayer life. It's important. I need to get on with it. This is something good. And you go home and do nothing. You know, it's not going to work. Nothing's going to change in my life and in your life. We need to do something about it. We don't drift into spiritual life. We do not drift into disciplined prayer. Did you hear that? We don't drift into it. It's not just going to happen. We do not grow in prayer unless we plan to pray. That means we must set aside time to do nothing, but pray. What we actually do reflects our highest priorities. That means we can proclaim our commitment to prayer until the cows come home. But unless we actually pray, our actions disown our words. So the best thing to do, if we hear Jesus' call to prayer, it's not to go home expecting something will happen. Just like that. We need to be proactive. We need to do something about it. Here are some things that I think would be helpful, uh, at least for me, and hopefully uh, they will be helpful to you as well. The important thing about prayer is not to start with yourself, but to start with him. If I start with myself, I probably don't have enough reasons to pray. Uh, I don't have the confidence. I don't feel I'm right. I, I, I don't feel I've done whatever day of the week. You know, I probably feel, oh, yeah, I don't think God wants to hear from me. Don't start with yourself. Start with what Jesus has just told us. 
He's your father and he is the king. That's why you should pray. Because he is your father and he is the king. The best way to learn is by praying. Seriously, I can't stress this enough. Most of us don't learn how to pray because we don't pray. The best way to learn how to pray is by praying. And, and we know that. I, I know when I, when I pass my driving test. I mean, all of you can look back and you think, I, I can honestly ask you, were you a good driver when you passed your driving test? No. We knew the basics. So how did, I can see you, Elizabeth. <laughs> how, can, how can we learn to get better? It's by practicing. So what I started doing, I started doing sort of late night drives to Asda. You know, when the roads were clear and I was just learning and getting comfortable and doing the roundabouts when there were no other cars. And then you begin to do it and then you find yourself 10, 15, 20, 50 years down the line. You're a really good driver. Why? Because you've been driven. But if you just sit and wish to become a better driver, you won't. You need to actually do. And it's the same with prayer. Pray, the, the best way to learn to pray is by praying. Pray as you can, not as you can't. Pray as you can, not as you can't. That's a really, I mean, it, it might sound like so simple and so basic and, and, and so intuitive, but actually the reality is most of us don't pray because we don't think we're good at praying. You don't need to be good at praying. You just need to be able to relate to God as the Father and the King and just pray as you can. Some people pray with a lot of words. Some people don't pray with a lot of words. Some people pray through writing things down. Some people walk as they pray. Some people sit down in a particular chair in their home. Some people pray more at night, and some people pray more. You know, pray as you can. Start with where you're at and build up instead of thinking, I wish I could pray like so-and-so. Because God hasn't made you so-and-so. God has made you you. And he wants to hear from you through you, not through somebody else. There's nothing worse than people impersonating spiritual lives. Oh, my word. It's just so, ugh. You know, I think God is kind of saying, stop that. <laughs> you don't need to be somebody else. Just speak to me like yourself. Another one? Feel your faith instead of the lies. Read the Bible. What we need in order to pray, what draws my heart to prayer, is a discovery and a greater increasing discovery of who God is like we looked at this morning in terms of father and king. And we need to fuel, because Satan is going to come and say, don't pray, you haven't prayed for the last two days. It's that thing when you haven't wronged your friend for a month, and then you need something from them, and then you think, I can't ring them. It's embarrassing. I've not rung them for two months. If I'm ringing them, they're going to you know, say, you know, oh, you're only ringing me because you want something from me. God's not like that. That's a lie. God will never, ever do that to you and me. So, you know, Satan's going to come to lie. He said, oh, you just argue with your husband or your wife. Don't, don't go pray now. God doesn't want to hear from you. Big fat hypocrite. Who do you think you are? That's a lie. God wants to hear from you. Anytime, every time. So as we read God's word, we find truth. And this truth sets our mindset in such a way that when Satan comes with a lie, it's like an antivirus. And suddenly the word of God says, no, uh -uh, uh -uh, I'm not having that. I'm not having that. That's a lie. I can go to God and I can pray because the Bible tells me so. So we need to fill our minds and hearts with scripture. And we need to read that in order to have that image of God that is true instead of the lies that are there. 
Intimacy needs to be built in the ordinary. What do I mean by that? The most important thing is discovering the secret. I remember reading that uh, word that Paul is writing to the Thessalonians, and he's saying, short thing, short command, but really baffling. Pray at all times. Hello? What does that mean? What do you mean pray at all times? You can't pray at all times. You pray before meals. You pray before you go to bed. You pray when you get up in the morning. That's what the good people do. You know, prayer all times? What does that mean? It means that actually we do that. We're building that sense of intimacy with God in the ordinary. I'm driving and I'm being anxious about something. I've got a meeting with somebody. I'm being anxious. I'll speak to the Father about my anxiety. You know. There are friends, there are people who are struggling. They come into my mind right then and there. I just speak to the Father about them. I'm doing washing up. There's something that's on my heart as I'm praying for the church. I can pray right then and there. I'm going for a walk. I can pray. Whatever I'm doing. And actually we find ourselves in so many in-between times. Particularly for those of you of my generation a little bit under. Just every single time you pick up your phone... And particularly you want to check social media or something like that or the football scores, all that kind of stuff. Actually, what I'm saying to you, you've got a bit of a dead time there. So you could pray. How many of us are in the queue at the supermarket? And if it's Aldi, it's a longer queue, right? Because there's somebody with like 11 billion things in, 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 in their basket. And you've got like three boxes of eggs. And you're in the queue and you're thinking, right, half an hour. And you pull out your phone and you check, you know, what's on the villa message board or something like that. Whatever your thing is, you know, looking into birds, Mike, or anybody else, just, you know, checking, you know, what the weather's going to be like and looking at the news, whatever your hobby is, whatever your interest is. We find it so easy to do that, but actually that's dead time. That's time you could pray. And so we get the phone out. Just pray. Pray for the people around you. Pray that they will find Christ. You know, pray for the town. There's so many things. That's what I'm saying. Let's learn to do what Paul is doing. It's good to have disciplined prayer times, but I think we've got to avoid just praying on those times. We have. It's almost like saying to somebody, do you know what? Just breathe before your meals in the morning and in the evening. You can't. You need to breathe all the time. It's the same spiritually speaking. It's the breath of our soul and we need to take in all the time. And actually, before you know it, it becomes subconscious and just very natural. And you begin to develop this prayer life through the ordinary things in life, to the things that frustrate you, to the things that you're rejoicing about, to the things that amaze you. And suddenly, you find yourself talking to the Father all the time. And that's what we want. That sense of normality where God is involved in our lives. Day in and day out. Do you realize that the President of the United States gets correspondence? I mean, me and you get, I know we don't get letters nowadays, we get spam emails, you know, or requests, all sorts of things, all sorts of things that come in your inbox. In the old days, probably we received some sort of advertisement that would be coming in, in your inbox. The funniest thing that I received, I think, I don't, don't get many, 
for some reason, I was uh, I became Mrs. Mergu at some point, and it's not it wasn't addressed to my mother. It was addressed to me, and it was some sort of a I don't know clothes catalogue. I didn't even open it up, you know, all that kind of stuff. But people used to kind of send all sorts of unsolicited things. And when you're in a high position, like the President of the United States, there's loads of correspondence that comes. And sometimes it's letters of acknowledgement, of encouragement, of thanks. But actually there are other times when there are requests. When somebody's dealing with some really tragic thing in their life, you can imagine that there are families of people who've been imprisoned. There, There are people who are going through hardship. And they write to the President of the United States. In 1897, President McKinley asked for somebody to help with the administration of a hundred letters that he used to receive by day. Did you hear that? 1897. Used to get a hundred letters by day. By the time Herbert Hoover was the president, the office would receive around 800 letters a day. And many of the letters would often start with this particular line, I know no one will read this. But the reality is that always any letter that you write to the President of the United States is read by somebody. And basically, the person, there is a person appointed who is the director of presidential correspondence at the White House, and they have a group of about 45 staffers, 35 interns, and 300 rotating volunteers. Oh, my word. There's a lot of mail going there. And different presidents have different habits. The head of this particular department, after the selection process, from all the people that are handling them, reads 300 pieces of mail a day. And then they pass on, guess how many, a day towards the evening for the president to read. Aren't you glad that when it comes to prayer, we don't have to jump through those hoops to bring our requests before the King of Kings? Because this King of Kings, who hears from millions and millions of people, every day has an open door. Every day is ready to listen. We don't have to be filtered through a process. It isn't as if only a few get through because they get it right or they seem to be more important. Instead, this father of ours invites us and says, come, come and speak to me. I love you dearly and I want to hear from you. And this is the invitation I want to give us this morning, is to step into this life of prayer that our God, the Father and the King, invites us to. But there's one last thing that I want to say that is absolutely, absolutely significant. And there is a catch. If one of you would suddenly go to Mr. Petromurgu and say... um, Dad, can I take you for a walk? Or shall we go and watch City play? For some reason, with his onset of dementia, although he introduced me to the villa, now he thinks he's a City fan. So 
Don't know what's going on. Mo and Sid must have prayed a lot. But if you were to say to him, we'll go and watch City play, he's probably going to look at you in a bit of a strange way and say, you're not my son, and I'm not your father. We can only come to God and know him as our father and as our king if we have a relationship with him. And my invitation for you, if you've never had a moment in your life when you've acknowledged the sin in your life, like that prodigal son, and said, I'm coming back to the father, you need to have that restored relationship. Otherwise, you've got no grounds to stand on. You can't call God a father if you're not his daughter or his son, if you're not reconciled to him. One of the famous painters did this picture of Jesus, Jesus knocking at the door, and it's a verse in Revelation. And one of the kind of, kind of corny, but kind of clever. In the picture, there's no handle. Jesus is standing at the door on the outside, and there is no handle. And one little boy going to an exhibition noticed this, and he asked the people that he was going with, and he said, this is strange, you know, there is no handle on the door. And then the person was with him, said, no, of course there isn't. He said, why not? And the person said, because the handle is on the inside. Somebody from the inside needs to open the door for Jesus to come into their life. If you don't have a relationship with Jesus, you need to take that step. You need to be proactive. You need to take the initiative and actually say, and there's no better time than this morning to actually say, I want to know this God as my father and as my king and be able to pray to him in a rightful way because I'm his son and his daughter, by taking that step and becoming a Christian. And my invitation for you is to be able to pray and take hold of this incredible privilege. Take that step this morning, and there'll be an opportunity later on as we close the service to do that. Let's pray as I invite the band to come back and lead us. Father, how easily we say that word, and yet how rich that is. To know that we are unworthy human beings, full of failures, always falling short. Yet because of Jesus' grace, invited into a relationship with you, and we can call you Father. Father, we're so grateful for your invitation to draw near to you. Thank you that you're involved in our lives. Thank you that you have a plan and a purpose for us. And the longing of our heart is to draw near to you. I pray that somehow you keep expanding our horizon to understand the the, the depth and breadth of what a relationship with you is about and what prayer is about. And may we become those people who through the very ordinary events of our daily lives, are people who pray, people who discovered how good you are. And that our hearts are constantly reaching for yours, for ourselves, for others around us, as we pray. Holy Spirit, do our work in us to draw us near and help us to have that confidence and trust to come and pray. Amen.